The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Heavenly Father, we know that your scriptures, both Old and New Testament, teach that on that last day you will come again in glory and that you will judge the living and the dead and you will establish your kingdom that has no end. We believe this to be true because you've told us such in your word. I ask, Father, that you'd be gracious with every soul here that as we contemplate Revelation chapter 20 and this great and fearful and awesome day when Christ judges, that you would find us ready, that our saving faith in Christ would be sure and our life of holiness and righteousness would testify to that. I pray, Lord, that if there is any soul here that does not know you as Lord and Savior, that today would be the day that they come to know you. What a great day that would be, Father, today to know you, that they might come into your presence and not be judged and thrown into the lake of fire, as John testifies. So I ask, Holy Spirit, that you'd be gracious with us, that you would enable us to hear this word, that you would enable a sinner like me to faithfully teach it, and that we might not just heed it as a warning, Father, but see the great judgment to come as your great work. Give us ears to hear if we are unwilling. Give us hearts to receive if we are stubborn. And give us spirits, I pray, to yield to your great and glorious truths. In Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) Good morning. Your judgment day, there's a title for you. You say, well, why is it my judgment day? Why is it not someone else's judgment day? Um, It's everyone's judgment day. Um, The scriptures clearly teach that on that last day, God will come and he will judge. In fact, every major religion in the world believes in a final day of reckoning, regardless of their perspective of who God is. And so this theme permeates mankind and it certainly permeates the word of God. And so we want to look at it today And my hope would be that you would leave here having an assurance that you know Christ as Savior and your life matches your profession. That would be my prayer for you and hopefully your prayer for yourself and for one another. In the 1970s, there was a serial killer by the name of Richard Cunningham. Um, And he he terrorized women in the New York and New Jersey area. He actually uh, was, was titled or dubbed the Times Square Killer. He was uh, convicted for brutally torturing and killing 11 women. Um, And after arrested, he actually said that he killed many more, up to 80, that no one knew about. Some say that he might be uh, the worst serial killer in modern American history. After 29 years behind bars, he gave an interview in 2009. And this is what he said. Listen. He said, it was a game to me. I was able to get almost any woman to do whatever I wanted them to do. It's almost godlike. He said, you're in complete control of someone's destiny. And then he added this. He said, I never thought I would get caught. I never thought I would get caught. Now, his crimes were, were extreme. Most would agree. But I think his approach toward life sounds very familiar to the Western worldview and how we approach life. 
Many say that life is a game. You can do whatever you want. You can think whatever you want. You can act as though you're in control of everything. And you can say, I'll never get caught because there is no universal law and there is no universal law giver and therefore there is no judge. And therefore, we do what is right in our own eyes. And then we come to Revelation chapter 20 and this passage says the exact opposite. So either the culture's right, either serial killers are right, or we would argue that God is right. I'm, I'm going to hedge my bet on God. That there is a judgment day coming. That's what this vision is. And it includes a final day for every single person ever born. That we will stand before God. And we will be judged by God based on our lives. We'll give an account for our lives. And based upon that judgment, we'll either spend an eternity with God in the eternal realm, on the new heaven and the new earth, or we will be cast out of God's presence and spend an eternity, as John said, in the lake of fire, which we know to be hell. This morning, as we consider this passage, I I want you to picture yourself standing before the Lord on that day. Many of us are nearer that day than others. But at some point in time, in the very near future, for all of us, we will come before God. I want you to picture yourself, and I want you to consider, with all seriousness, how will you be judged? How will you be judged by God? And what will God judge, use to judge you? Now, I want you to consider that, not according to your standard, because we all have our personal standards of justice, and certainly not according to the culture standards, but let's ask that question in the light of God's perfect standard of righteousness which is what the Bible says the judgment will be. I want you to consider the outcome of your judgment and judgment day. And by God's grace, I want you to know that your end will be eternal life. I want you to know that before you leave this place today. And I want to consider that this morning by looking at the passage, asking, or actually just considering two basic teachings from the text. One, the final judgment, which John makes very clear, and two, the final verdict. The theme of the sermon, if there were one to wrap it all together, would be this. Jesus Christ is man's only hope on the day of judgment. Jesus Christ is your only hope on the day of judgment. Do I have your attention? I hope so. Point number one. So we've been working through the book of Revelation, and John has already revealed in multiple visions God's judgment throughout various cycles. He's already judged the beast. He's judged the false prophet. We saw him judge Satan. He's going to judge death and Hades. He's going to throw them into the lake of fire. But before the consummation, which we're going to get to in 21 and 22, and some of you are eager to get there, where God comes and he brings a new heaven and a new earth and he restores mankind, before we get there, there's one last judgment. There's one last judgment in this book. And it's not of the beast or the false prophet or Satan. It is of mankind. It is of those made in his image. And it is called the great white throne judgment. Look at verse 11 with me. God is seated upon his throne. Verse 11, John writes, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Now John has seen many thrones throughout the book of Revelation, but none like this throne. He says this throne is great, which is probably actually talking about the size of it because the size of a king's throne then would determine how powerful they were. So it's probably a big throne. And it's pure white. And you say, well, I know why it's pure white because the one seated upon it is perfectly just, perfectly pure, 
perfectly holy, and you are 100% right. It's interesting because he doesn't give us the occupant's name here, but we know, we know from Daniel chapter 7, almost an identical passage, identifies the one seated upon it as the Ancient of Days. Listen to this. This is a prophecy hundreds of years before this was written from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel's having a similar vision, and he says, I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. Now listen to this. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. That's all mankind. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So we're drawing that straight from Daniel chapter 7. Some will actually argue, and I, I think they're right, in, in Revelation 22, that Jesus and the Father are both seated upon the throne. In other words, both God the Father and God the Son will be seated upon the throne on that day of judgment. Either way, we know that they're so holy and they're so pure. Look at the latter part of verse 11. John says, from his presence, from the presence of God, seated upon the throne to judge, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Now it's likely metaphoric language, but the picture is, is it's easy to see, right? Uh, oftentimes we look at the earth and the sky and we see its beauty and we see its majesty and people say, oh, it's so pure. But even the earth and sky in the presence of this judging God must flee because he's so holy and he's so perfect and his justice is so good, they cannot be there. In fact, John says there's no place for them to be found and there will be no place for them to be found because at the judgment day, God will be bringing the new heaven and the new earth. And so the old sky and the old earth, it must go away. It cannot remain. We'll see that next week. So John sets the scene here, and it's, it's an awesome scene. God is seated upon his great white throne. The sky and the earth have fled. Mankind is being gathered, and judgment is going to be issued. Look at verse 12. John said, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So all the dead, great and small, some translate that important, unimportant, throughout all of human history, you can think every man, every woman, every child ever born is brought before the judgment seat of God Almighty, the great white throne judgment seat, and is adjudicated justly by a perfectly just God. It is an awesome sight. And as John gazes upon this sea of humanity that's now surrounding the throne, he sees these books, and it's plural, multiple books, and they're being opened because it's time to use them to judge those who have gathered before the throne. They're books to judge. They're not books of poetry. It's not fiction. It's not history. They're ledgers, actually. And if you know anything about accounting, this record-keeping is what these books are. And it's recorded the lives of every single person are written down in these books. Every single thought, every single word, every single deed, every single motivation and purpose behind every thought, word, and deed. For your whole life, recorded in these eternal books. It's an eternal ledger. Every second of every person's life is recorded in these eternal books in the courtroom of God. Now, let's just reflect upon that for just a moment. Just a moment. We talk, there's a lot of discussion today about the surveillance state. 
We talk about China, we talk about Iran, we talk about Syria. There are cameras and microphones everywhere, no matter where you go. In some of these states, they know what their citizens are doing at all times. We talk about the dangers of that, and yet there's very little dialogue about the books of heaven. And there's very little concern about mankind standing before a holy God, even though the scriptures have testified to that now for millennia. Think about what you did yesterday, or maybe last week, that you wish you could just erase from that book. Maybe last month or last year. What sinful thought, what hateful word, what unloving act was jotted down that violates the law of God, that runs contrary to the way you were created to live for God? What silly idol are you chasing? Or what worldly distraction is drawing you away from worshiping the one true living God? And that has been written down in that book. Do you remember when Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees in Luke chapter 12? He was rebuking them for their hypocritical living. These were supposed to be the religious men of Israel. And yet they were living contrary to that. Their, their lives did not match their professions of faith. This is what he said. Luke chapter 12. He said, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. Nothing, my friends, not a single thought, word, or action in your entire life, saved or unsaved, will be hidden at the judgment seat of God. The books will be opened and your whole life will be put on display. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27. Here's a succinct teaching from the word of God. It is appointed for man to die once and after that comes what? Comes judgment. So no one will be exempt from this. Look at verse 13 with me. And the sea, John says, the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Now the sea then, it represented death and chaos, but there was a, there was a myth then that if you died at sea, your, your body and your soul stayed together in the water, that they didn't separate. Of course, we don't believe that to be true, but that's what they were believing. I think that's one of the reasons John includes it here in the narrative. Hades, we understand to be that, it's that disembodied state. When someone dies, their body goes into the ground or a tomb or it's cremated and their soul goes somewhere else. Now, according to scriptures, if if we saw last week, if you know Christ and you die in Christ, well, that's a great thing. Your body goes into the grave, but your soul goes to be with Jesus. And we saw last week, it goes to reign with Jesus as a priest and a judge. If you don't know Christ, when you die, your, your body goes into the grave, but your soul goes to this idea or this place of Hades where it actually experiences a form of torment waiting for the final resurrection and the final judgment, which is the lake of fire. But either way, what what John is seeing here is that death, Hades, the sea, they're all being forced by God to give up bodies and souls. All the bodies and all the souls on that last day, it's gonna be an extraordinary sight, are gonna be gathered at what's called the general resurrection and they're gonna be brought before the great white throne of God brought together to be judged by God justly. You say, well, this this sounds a bit foreign to me. It shouldn't. Jesus taught this very clearly during his earthly ministry. So these are from our Lord's mouth, John chapter 5. Jesus said, do not marvel at this, because they were marveling at it, maybe as some of you are marveling at it. 
He said, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, God's voice, and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so John's point here is really clear. Regardless of how, when, or where you die, regardless of your standing in life while you're alive, rich or poor, powerful, weak, educated, uneducated, saved or unsaved, on that last day of human history, every single person ever born will be raised body and soul and brought before the judgment seat of God. And that includes you. It includes you. Standing before God to be judged fairly. He's a perfect judge. He's a just judge. He said, well, what, how is he going to judge? What's the standard he's going to judge? Verse 12 and verse 13, we get an answer here. And I think many Christians really struggle with this. We don't understand how this works in the context of the gospel. The final account you will give that you'll be judged by will be your works. You say, now wait a minute. That smacks against evangelicalism. Look at verse 12 again. He said the dead were judged according to what? According to what they had done. And then he reiterates it again in verse 13. They were judged according to what they had done. The Greek actually says this. They're judged according to the deeds. That word ergon in the Greek literally means works. They were judged according to the works of them. They were judged according to their works. It's a teaching that I think proves really difficult in the church because we struggle reconciling that with saved by grace through faith. And yet, it's not a problem with Scripture. It's a problem with our understanding of the gospel. The Scriptures are consistent. We, we think that if we're saved by grace through faith, you know this from Paul, that it's not our own doing. It's a gift from God. It's not our own works, lest we boast. You say, Paul says that in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We think that if we're saved by grace through faith, that works has nothing to do with that final judgment day. And yet the scriptures, over and over, especially in the New Testament, say that the final reward or the final punishment will be adjudicated based upon works. Matthew chapter 7, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching about eternal life. And he said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, who does the will, who does the work. Even more directly, listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2, if you do not like this teaching from Revelation 20. Paul now, speaking of the final judgment, he said, God will render to each one according to his faith, feelings, works. Ergon, same word. God will render to each one according to his works to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. That will be the lake of fire. This, my beloved, is the standard that Jesus uses. It's the standard that he said he was going to use when he comes again in glory. This is from Matthew chapter 25. Listen with all your might. Jesus is talking. He said, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. That's the great white throne. Before him, he gathered all the nations. That's all people. 
He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from goats. He will place the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, he's going to say to his sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Here, you have eternal life, he says. Now listen to the way he's going to judge. Jesus said, For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, speaking of Christians, you did it to me. They were judged by what? By their works. Then he will say to those on the left, he'll say to the goats, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and its angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And so even Christ says the standard of measurement on that last day will be the works of the professing Christian. In other words, there is no eternal life apart from one's good works as the Bible clearly teaches. None of you have fallen out of your chairs yet, so I'm very thankful for that, because that could be the wrong response to it. The strain here, if you're beginning to feel it, is the impossibility of this. You're beginning to sense that, and you should. The Bible says what? Romans chapter three, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one does good, no one seeks after God, no, not one. So there's this universal problem of depravity that no one's doing good, and yet God says, I'm gonna judge you on your goodness. The Bible says the wages or the consequences of our sins we know is what? It's death. We cannot undo our sin. We cannot repay our sin. And therefore, the lake of fire is there for everyone. And the Bible says even of your own righteous deeds, they're what? They're like nothing but filthy rags before a holy God. Even your best deeds, your most righteous works before the holy God are like filthy, blood-stained rags. In other words, the standard of works that God will be using on judgment day is really bad news for sinful man. It's not good news for sinful man because it is perfection. It is absolute holiness. It is a perfectly sinless life that God will use to judge you on that last day. So it's not this worldly idea that many of us embrace, this idea of the scales of justice You have good and you have bad and you hopefully have more good than bad and if the good outweighs the bad, then God will judge you by allowing you to come in. My beloved, that's that's not even a standard we use in our own judicial system. If your good outweighs the bad, you will not be punished. If you you live your whole life as a model citizen, you're a a loving father or a loving mother or, or a devout wife or a devout husband, You're you're a faithful employee. You pay your taxes and you take care of your neighbor. You do that your whole life, but then you hit your 50th birthday and you think, you know, today's the day. I'm gonna steal a car, I'm gonna rob a bank, and I'm gonna kill the security guard. And you get caught because you're not very good at it because you've spent your whole life being good. You're not gonna stand before the judge and say, you know, your honor, up until the last few days, I was doing great. Don't all my good deeds for the past 50 years outweigh this most unfortunate bank robbery and murder? Shouldn't you let me go free? Please. If the judge is a good judge, he will say, are you out of your mind? You robbed a bank and you murdered a human being. That judge will judge him justly. 
How much more so, my beloved, a perfect judge of heaven? How much more so the perfect judge who God is? Perfect righteousness is the standard and the expectation for all who desire eternal life. That's why the psalmist, remember the psalmist in Psalm 24 asked the question, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can enter into his holy place? And then he answers himself, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who is that? That's not me. And I don't know all of you intimately, but I don't think it's you. Who has clean hands and an absolutely pure heart? If you're required, let's say this afternoon, if you're required to stand before a judge this afternoon, and just give an account of last week, seven days. But that standard before that judge was absolute perfection. And if not, it was the death penalty. How would you fare before that judge? Everything you did was done in faith. The Bible says anything done outside of faith is sin. Everything you did was in faith. Everything you did was exactly as the Lord willed. Everything you did was to the best of your ability for God's glory. Every word you spoke is only a word that God himself would utter. Every word was perfectly truthful. Every word was said with the perfect tone, with the perfect love. And how about every thought? Every thought you had in a seven-day period last week was a pure thought, a pleasing thought to God, an other-centered thought for God's glory. How would you fare over the past week in this courtroom where the standard is perfection. And if the punishment for that is the death penalty, how would the verdict come down on you? Would that judge find your one week matching perfection? If not, my beloved, how about, again, the judge of all judges? How about the one seated upon the great white throne who's going to judge your whole life? Not just a week. We can't make a week, we can't make a day, We can't make a few hours without sinning against a most holy God. So what hope does even the most moral, most righteous person who has ever lived have in a court like this? What hope is there in a court of perfect justice, in a court where even the earth and sky flee because God is so holy? In Matthew chapter 19, the rich young ruler who was seemingly blessed by God, he believed in God, he obeyed the commandments of God, but he refused to follow Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said? The disciples, it says, they're greatly astonished that this guy wasn't saved. And Jesus said this. The disciples asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible. With man, salvation is impossible. But with God, what? All things are possible. You're still with me? Point number two, the verdict. Don't leave now. That would be a horrible time to leave because you don't have an answer yet, right? God's absolute holiness requires holiness in his presence or there's no eternal life. And there is an answer and it's a beautiful answer. Point number two. Go back to verse 12 with me. John said, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Those Those are the books of ledgers. That's the ledger of your life. But then he said, then another book was opened, which is the book of life. Another book with all the other books. It's just one book, and it's called the book of life. Now, we should be familiar with this. We've heard about this book already as the book of life or the Lamb's book of life. 
It was the book that Jesus was talking about when he was teaching the church in Sardis. Remember Revelation chapter three? Jesus said this to the church in Sardis. He said, the one who conquers, the one who remains faithful to me, Jesus said, all the way to the end will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Having your name in the book makes the impossible possible. Belonging to Christ enables a sinner like you and a sinner like me to come before a thrice holy God and not be cast into the lake of fire. Look at verse 14 with me. John said, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And we've talked about that. The lake of fire is the final judgment that everyone and everything that remains in rebellion against God will be cast into. It's known as the fiery furnace, that place where there's what? The weeping and gnashing of teeth where the smoke never ceases to rise. Death is thrown there. We're thankful for that. Paul said that death is man's great enemy. We hate death. Death is thrown into the lake of fire. Hades, that intermediate state, which we don't like either, it's thrown into the lake of fire. In the new heaven and the new earth, there'll be no death and there'll be no Hades. Oh, that's an inglorious thought, is it not? No death, no Hades. But then John says in verse 15, look with me. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And suddenly, there's no more cheering, right? We're very thankful death's gone, and we're very thankful that Hades is gone, but suddenly, anyone whose name was not found in the book is also thrown into the lake of fire. You say, well, whose names are in that book? It's anyone who knows Christ. It's anyone who's made a profession in Christ. That means they, they've confessed their sins. They've sought forgiveness. They've been forgiven by God, and they have made Christ their life. Not knowing Christ in this life and then dying means your name is not written in that book. And if your name is not written in that book, then you are cast into the lake of fire and your company is not good company. We know the beast is there. We know the false prophet's there. We know that Satan's there. And now we're told death and Hades are there. That's your neighborhood. If your name's not written in this book. Now, if you've been listening closely, you're either a bit confused or you have a question. You're saying, well, which one is it? Which one is it? Are we going to be judged according to the first books, according to our works, as you just said, John said, or are we going to be judged according to the other book, whether our name is written in it or not? And the answer is yes. It's yes. I'm going to give you four scenarios and only one works. So I want you to listen really closely and maybe think about what scenario you fall into and we want to reorient that to the gospel. Person number one believes that he can earn his way into heaven by being good. Right? I'm going to fill that ledger. I'm going to fill that ledger with all kinds of good works. I'm going to work really hard to help people. I'm going to work hard to have pure thoughts. I'm going to try to control my tongue. I'm going to use my resources for others. We meet such people in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is speaking of this last day, the judgment day, and he said, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? These were, these were some pretty righteous people in what they were doing. Jesus said, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. You say, Wait a minute. Moralism fails. 
You cannot earn eternal life by being good. Person number two has been taught that all you have to do is believe in God. Just believe in God intellectually, and it doesn't matter how you live. This is called beliefism. So you can continue to live as however you want to live in willful, unrepentant sin. You continue to serve whatever idols you serve, sex, money, power, career, just as long as you believe. Now we meet these characters in Matthew chapter 3 when John the Baptist was out baptizing in the Jordan. He saw all the religious leaders coming to him, and they certainly believed in God, but their lives were a moral wreck. And he said to them, bear fruit, good works, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And he said, do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. John says, I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So believing but not living in accordance with your faith does not produce eternal life. That's failure number two in the court of God. There's a third type of person, though. And I think this may, we may find ourselves in this group. It's a syncretist. You say, well, what does that mean? A syncretist is someone who brings two things together. The syncretist says, well, you're saved by grace through faith and works. You've got you to have them both, and you've got to stick them together. And, and if, if you put your faith in Christ and you work really hard and you do both, then you will have eternal life. Well, again, I'll go back to that rich young ruler. He was obedient. He, lie, he did not lie to Jesus when Jesus asked him about the commandments. He was obedient, and he believed in God, and he missed heaven because he forsook Christ. In other words, it's not faith plus works. That fails in God's court too. You say, well, aren't we out of options? We're not. There's, there's one more, and this is where you want to fall. Person number four believes this. This is what the Bible teaches, that we are saved by God's grace, his unmerited favor, through faith in Jesus Christ alone. No works were saved as a free gift of God. And, not but, and the person who's really saved, who's been born again by the Spirit and has the Spirit dwelling in them, that person will be transformed, and in their transformation they will what? They will do good works. Not to be saved, but because they are saved. They're new. They're made new. We meet this character, I believe, in, in Simon the leper's house. If you remember Matthew chapter 26, so this is literally hours before our Lord's going to be crucified. This woman came up to Jesus with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. Do you remember this? And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And the disciples, they, they rebuked her, saying, you should have sold that and used the money to feed the poor. And then Jesus says, why do you trouble the woman? He rebukes the disciples. And then he says this, listen with all your might. He said, she has done a beautiful thing to me in pouring out this ointment on my body. She has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done, that's her good works as a product of her faith, what she has done will also be told in her memory. In other words, this woman's costly sacrifice was not to earn Jesus' favor. It was not to earn forgiveness from Christ or love from Christ. She was pouring it out on him because she'd already been forgiven. She'd already been received. 
She had already known the love of Christ and therefore her good works were pouring out of her. So much so that Jesus says when the gospel is proclaimed, the product of her faith, the fruit of her faith will be known to the world. This final judgment that John sees is not works without faith. It's not faith without works. It's not faith plus works. It's the gospel. It's the gospel which the New Testament teaches over and over again. We are dead in our sins and then God makes us alive. And if you're made alive, then you're new. The Holy Spirit comes upon you and suddenly you love God, you love the things of God, you love the word of God and you now have what? You now have new desires. You have new desires that want to obey. Right Before you're saved, you don't want to obey. Before I knew God, I did not want to obey. I hated God, I hated the word, I hated the law. But then God saves you and you're now new. And suddenly the things you used to hate, you now love and the things you used to love, you now hate. Such a glorious transformation. This is what the New Testament teaches. Our good works, our good deeds come from our saving faith. Come from being made new. Come because your name was what? Written in the Lamb's book of life when he saved you. And therefore you are changed. That's why James is able to say dogmatically, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you what? My faith by my works. You want to know that I truly know Christ? Then you look at me, James says, and you'll see my life. You'll see my fruit. Not to be saved, but because I am saved. Now in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul clearly taught the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Eternal life, my beloved, it is not earned, it is free. I don't want any confusion on that point with this passage. And at the same time, the Bible teaches that eternal life is rendered according to one's works. So you're saved by grace through faith and the final judgment is in accordance with your life in faith. It's judged according to those works. Again, Romans 2, 6. God will render to each one eternal life or eternal death according to his works. And this is not a contradiction. Are we okay still? But it does mean that a true saving faith requires obedience. A true saving faith requires good works as a product of that saving faith. It will be known. It will be seen. It's not wrong (laughs) It's not wrong for God to expect his children, sons and daughters who claim his name, who have the Holy Spirit and have his word and have each other to walk in righteousness. That's not a wrong thing. You would actually expect that, right? If he's God and we're his children, we should live in accordance with our Father. That would be holy living. That would be good works because we've been changed from the inside out. A very famous pastor and author, John Piper, he put it really well. Listen, I'll, I'll quote him. I was going to take it, but I couldn't say it better, so I'm just going to read it. He said, we must learn to make the biblical distinction between earning eternal life on the basis of works, which the Bible, he says, does not teach, and receiving eternal life according to works, which the Bible does teach. Believers in Christ will stand before the judgment seat of God and will be accepted into eternal life on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus. But, he writes, our free acceptance by grace through faith will be in accordance with our works. 
So according to our works means this, that when God opens up those books, he's going to look at the ledger of every human being. Now the ledger for the unsaved person who never put their faith in Jesus, their names are not written in the book of life. And that means they've remained dead their whole life, dead in their sins, as the Bible teaches. It it means that every single word, every thought, every action, every motivation in that person's life was either normatively evil, as the Bible says, contrary to the laws of God, or it was good, but they did it for their own glory, which makes it evil because God says what? I will give and I will share my glory with no one. So for the person that's unsaved, they're going to stand before God. God's going to open up those books. There's been no transformation of heart. There's been no faith in Christ. And therefore, there will be no good works in their ledger. And so what will God do? Well, he's a perfectly just God. He will judge them fairly. And in their just judgment, he will cast them into the lake of fire. What about, what about the Christian? What about the, the, the true believer? Not... Not someone who professes Christ but doesn't follow Christ. Not someone trying to work their way into the kingdom of heaven. What about the true believer? Well, this day is a glorious day for you. right? You've been born again. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. You've been living a holy life. Your name is written in that other book. That other book that you love so much because you've been made alive. So God does this. He takes the fruit of the Spirit he's seen in your life, he takes the righteous deeds that he's seen you do because he's given you the power to do it. And he sees that in your ledger. He sees that you in your, in your faith have been like a brilliant light in this dark world. He sees that you have borne good fruit in your life because you know Christ. The Christian will not be acquitted on the day of judgment Not because we don't deserve judgment. We do. We won't be acquitted because we have measured up somehow to to God's perfect standard of righteousness. That's impossible. No one can other than Christ. The Christian will be acquitted because on the cross, if you haven't heard a word I said, then for the next two minutes, clue in. This is incredible. On the cross, Christ did two extraordinary things. On the cross, number one, Jesus paid for your sins in full if you put your faith in him. Every single sin Jesus paid in full if you know Christ. When his body was broken and his blood was shed, he was paying for your sins, the full payment. And that means, my beloved, that when God opens the books and he sees your ledger, he sees your name in the ledger, he sees every single sin you've ever committed every sin of word, every sin of thought, every sin of deed, your whole life there. But he also sees something else. He sees all those sins with a line through it. They've been stricken out of the record. And then right next to each sin, he sees three little words, paid in full, and they're written in blood. And right next to him it says, love Jesus. Paid in full, love Jesus. Jesus. It was through the work of Christ on the cross, not you, that your sins are forgiven because on that cross we know that Jesus bore our sins in full so that we don't have to. We know that Christ was consumed by that lake of fire on that cross so we don't have to. By grace, through faith, we have life eternal in Jesus. But on the cross he did another thing 
and we don't talk about this enough in church, and maybe we need to start talking about it more. Through his death and through his resurrection, he not only pays for your sins in full, but he equips us. He equips us to be born again, to live in the power of the Spirit according to the word. He equips us to what? To live as sons and daughters of the Father. He equips us to be a holy people, to actually know God and love God, and out of our love for God, want to obey, want to know the word. Unlike you were, if you know Christ, before you were converted, the sinner saved by grace can practice righteous deeds. You can do good work in Christ. And those are written down as well. And so God, when he opens up your ledger, he looks there and he sees all the sins are stricken out by the blood of Christ. And then he sees all these other works, all these good deeds of righteousness, your love for a husband or wife or children, your sacrifice for those in your life, your caring for people, your pursuing Christ. And he sees all these written down as well. And he knows that you know Christ because no one lives like this unless they live for Jesus. No one has good works written in a ledger unless their name is written in the book of life. In other words, he sees the product of your faith. Your sins are forgiven. They're stricken from the book. And on top of them are all the righteous deeds, all the moral goodness that you do because of Christ's love for you and your love for Christ. And they're there. And they testify. One author put, they corroborate. I like that. They corroborate your faith. If your faith is real, it'll be good works attached to it. It'll be evidence. And the books are evidence of your name being written in the book of life. And John says, if your name's in the book of life and there's righteous deeds in those books that are yours because of Christ, guess what? You're not thrown in a lake of fire. Oh, that's good news. Oh, that's really, really, really good news. No lake of fire for you. That's how you want to come out of judgment day, is it not? Don't you want God saying to you, come in, well done, good and faithful, what? Servant of mine. Come and enter my rest. I want to hear that. I want, I want you to hear that. That comes by God's grace through faith in Christ, which will produce brilliant works of holiness in your life. It'll be in accordance with, the works will be in accordance with and agreement with your faith. They will match. Jesus said, and I, and I believe him, he's God, he said, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. He said, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. And then he says, thus you'll recognize them by their fruits. Anyone who lives the same way they lived before and after their profession of faith testifies their faith is not, it's not real. It's a said faith, not a saving faith. It means their name's not written in the book of life. So the impact, and I, I, want, I want to close on this. If this day is coming, and we believe it's coming, that that final judgment is the final judgment. There's no, there's no appellate court. You can't appeal after God judges. Say, I want to go to a higher court, God. This is the great white throne judgment of God Almighty. And if there's no appellate process, then you need to know and, and, and maybe remind yourselves regularly that all those in your life that do not know God, all those who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and all those who profess him but do not live in accordance with his teachings, their end is this lake of fire. 
And if that's true, and you believe that, then you should be praying for them, should you not? And, and you should be testifying to them about Christ and the hope they can have of salvation through the cross. And if you're not praying for them and you're not talking to them, it must mean one of two things. You don't believe this day is real or you just don't love them all that much. Now that's hard to say, but it's true. If we believe this day is real and someone does not know Christ, if their name is not in the book, then the lake of fire awaits them, then we would act, pray for and testify too. But this vision of this day of judgment, I think it should cause us to reflect about our own lives. I think that if it should minimally cause us to say, does my life match my faith? Have I given my life to Christ and as a result, am I, am I producing holiness in any way? I would say radical obedience. There's no such thing in scripture as a lazy Christian or a partially obedient Christian. I'm gonna do some things that God wants me to do, but not other things that God tells me to do. I think most of us live mostly for ourselves and we dabble in the things of God. A little bit on Sunday, a little bit on Wednesday. Most of us in the Western world, we're more serious about job and work and school and sports than we are God or the things of God. You heard it read already, 1 Peter chapter 1, as obedient children, this is the Apostle Peter saying this, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as you, but as he who called you is holy, God says what? Be holy in all your conduct. Be holy for I am holy. And then Peter says, if you call on him as father, that's a Christian calling on God as father, who judges impartially to each man's works, then conduct yourselves with fear during your time of exile. That's now. That means cheap grace does not work. Professing Christ, claiming God as Father, but not living in accordance with the gospel, that's both its power and profession and a holy life, will do you no good in the day of judgment. Without good works in the books corroborating your profession, your name will not be found in the book of life. I'm talking about simple obedience to the word of God. Simple obedience to the things that God expects his children to do. Things that truly distinguish the Christian from the non-Christian. Right, I mean, you can be, you can be a loving father or a, a, a loving wife. You can be an obedient child. You can be a, a really hard person at work. You work well. You can be all those things and not know Christ, right? I'm talking about obedience to the things of God that distinguish God's people from those who do not know Jesus. I'll give you a few simple things and I'll close. Do you pray regularly and faithfully? Do you? The scriptures, Old New Testament, call us, command us to pray to God. Those whose names are written in the book of life, they're a praying people. Do you seek to be transformed by God's word? To know his word. Do you read it? Do you study it? Do you listen to it in sermons or podcasts? And do you want to know it, to be changed by it? To know God and know how to live for God? The names written in this book 
are people who strive to know and do God's word? Do you serve your brothers and sisters in Christ? This is simple. Do you use your gifts and talents to build up your brothers and sisters in the church? Those names written in this book of life, they're a serving people. That's who they are. They've been changed. Do you make disciples? The names in the book are disciple makers. Do you proclaim the gospel? The names in the book are gospel proclaimers. Do you pursue holiness in your life? Do you strive to identify, confess, and mortify sin and walk in righteousness? The names of those people in the book of life are holy people. Maybe the most important question, do you worship God? Do you worship God? Is your life spent growing, pursuing the wisdom and knowledge of God to know God more, to love God more, to commune with Him so that you might bring Him honor and glory in all that you do? Those whose names are written in the book of life are worshipers of the living God. These are all basic commandments. These are all basic expectations of God's people. If these do not reflect your life, then do not just say, well, not good. If this is not you, and I would argue given the the very low standards of righteousness in the Western church, this might be many of us then I would compel you to turn to Christ immediately that you might live. Turn to Christ this morning so that your name might be written in his book. Seek forgiveness for all your sins. Seek forgiveness for your ledger, for every sin that's there. Seek forgiveness for your lack of righteousness, for the lack of fruit in your supposedly transformed life. If you've been transformed by Christ, transformation means new identity, new person. Seek forgiveness for that. And then ask him to empower you by the Holy Spirit to walk in righteousness. Ask him. God wants you, if you claim Christ, to walk in holiness. Ask him to give you the power to live an obedient life, to know him, to know his word, and do what the word says, not out of duty, but by choice, because of his love for you and your love for him. Friends, the final day awaits us all. That's guaranteed. Christ is your only hope. If you really know him, you will live for him and righteous deeds will be the fruit of your labor. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a, an encouraging and difficult teaching for us. We know that it's by grace through faith that we can enter into your throne room. We know it's through the work of Christ on the cross, his broken body and his shed blood that gains us access to you for eternal life. And yet your scriptures make clear over and over that on that final day, you will judge us according to our works. Not that we've done good to be saved, but because we are in fact saved and made new, we will do good.
Father, I pray you would be gracious. Bring great clarity to my brothers and sisters on that teaching this morning. For anyone here who thinks they may be in danger, either trying to work their way into heaven, either relying upon an easy beliefism, either trying to combine faith and works, I pray, Lord, that you would bring the gospel to them and they would see the glorious work of Christ that is sufficient to save and they would put all their hope and trust in him. Do not allow us to be like the rich young ruler who believed in you and obeyed your commandments but refused to follow Christ. I pray, Lord, for total transformation of heart and mind. Make us, as a church, a brilliant testimony to your goodness and your love and your mercy. Do that for our lives and do that for the blessing of this community in which you planted us. I ask you to do this above all else for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.